Um, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll take a look at, at Luke's gospel. Uh, Lord, what a wonderful truth we just sang. No, no uh, scheme of hell, no power of man can pluck me from your hand. Lord, you have canceled the power of sin in our lives. You have broken its hold over us through your death and resurrection. Lord, I pray that that truth would be ringing in our ears constantly. We have hope in Christ. And Lord, now as we look at uh, your confrontation with the Sadducees in, in Luke's gospel, I pray that you would open our hearts to understand what we're seeing. Lord, that you would grant us the hope of the resurrection uh, through your words. Lord, be with us now. We need your power. We need your Holy Spirit to, to understand what uh, we're reading, what we're seeing, what we're hearing. And so come and be with us as we turn to your word. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. So we're still in Luke 20. We're at the end. Um, next week we'll kind of branch between 20 and 21. Promise we're going to leave 20 at some point. Um, but what we're seeing now is this third confrontation. Remember, Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and it kind of feels like he stepped in the door of Jerusalem and then just got hit with all these questions. And so Luke launches into these three confrontations that he has right at the beginning of his entry into Jerusalem. This is the last one. After this, then we head into uh, the events of Holy Week. So uh, this is the final challenge that we wind up with. It starts out, there came to him some Sadducees who deny the resurrection. This is the first and only time in the Gospel of Luke we, we meet the Sadducees. I was really surprised to see that. As a matter of fact, this is the only story in Mark where we meet the Sadducees. But if you look at Matthew, they're right there from the beginning all the way through. So since we're in Luke, we have to ask the question, well, who are the Sadducees? Who, who are these cats who come up and challenge Jesus again? Um, the Sadducees were one of the sects in Jerusalem at the time. They don't know where they came from, where their origination was, probably somewhere around 200 B.C., but they're not exactly sure. The word Sadducees probably comes from Zadok, which was a priest's name. Um, so there seems to be some connection there. Again, it's really kind of obscure. Um, politically, these folks were neutral. You know, the Pharisees hated the idea that the Romans had taken over Jerusalem and they wanted them kicked out. The, um, the Essenes bailed on the city and headed out into the desert because they hated it. And the Zealots wanted to blow everything up in sight because of the Romans. The Sadducees were like, let's not rock the boat. It's okay. They just were going to get along to get along. Um, part of the reason is probably because these were the rich folks. Um, Josephus, who is a, a first century Jewish historian, he's, he's convert, or he deserted to the uh, Romans, and so he writes a history of the Jewish wars and a history of the Jewish people. He wrote about the Sadducees, so we know something about them from uh, even uh, beyond what the Bible says. They tended to be the rich folks, the upper middle class, priests, uh, priestly clan, those kind of people, um, and they were probably the most religious conservative of all of them. They denied any kind of oral history, any kind of oral tradition. They said, no way. As a matter of fact, they were so severe, they said only the Torah, the five books that Moses wrote, count. They didn't even listen to anything else. So these were the folks who were the most religiously conservative, narrowing it down as much as possible. But at the same time, they seemed to be like modern rationalists. They said, there is no such thing as resurrection. When the body dies, the soul dies. There's no, no resurrection, no afterlife. There's no such thing as an angel. And now I'm not sure how they got that because angels are all throughout Moses' writing. I mean, they show up all over the place, but they say, yeah, there's no angels. And um, 
And then, like I said, they, they stuck to just the Torah. Any of the other books, they wouldn't listen to. Uh, so because this is who they are, they come to Jesus not with a question that's going to get him arrested. Remember, the chief priest came, and they said, we're going to ask him a question, and he's going to answer it, and then we're going to get him arrested for, uh, for trying to overthrow the government. Should you pay tax to Caesar? And Jesus just slices right through that one. So they were trying to get him arrested. The, the Sadducees don't want to rock that boat. They're just concerned about his religious teaching, I think. So I think my, my take on this is the reason that they ask him this question is to discredit him as a scholar. And so what's the question? Well, this, they come to him, and, and Luke tells us right up front, they deny the resurrection. So that kind of puts us in the mode, okay, this is going to be about the resurrection. They ask him about a, man, a, a large family, a family of seven brothers, that's a pretty sizable family, and the first brother gets married but doesn't have any children, and he dies. And then the second brother takes the wife, and so at the end of this, this chain, there's nobody left, and then she dies. So in heaven, who's, whose wife is she going to be? In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? That's the question. Do you get a feel for how heartless this is? <laughs> These seven brothers die, and then they get to the end, and they say, oh, and by the way, she died, but yeah, whatever. You know, I mean, it just feels so stinking heartless. Uh, what they're appealing to, and notice they said that it was Moses that gave him this instruction. That comes from uh, Deuteronomy, where Moses says that um, it's, it's something called leverite marriage. And so if a man gets married and dies and doesn't have a, a child, then his brother's responsibility is to take that woman as a wife and have a child by him or by her, and then the child is named after the brother not after the man who, who uh, sired the child. And what is up with that? <laughs> Doesn't that seem just weird that we would do that? Um, do we do that now? If somebody in the church dies childless, is their brother supposed to step in? No, that was for a specific period and it was for a specific time. What was going on um, is that God established Israel and he intended to maintain the, the geometry of Israel, if you will. So he wanted to preserve these family lines. And so if a man died and didn't have any children, there would be nobody to inherit in that family line. And so God instituted this leveret marriage for a period of time so that those family lines would be maintained. And then also think of um, the year of Jubilee, right? If somebody owned a piece of property, right, when, when they took over the promised land, they divided up the land, they gave it to the families, they gave it to the clans. And if one of the families had to sell a parcel of land, they didn't want Jesus, or God didn't want that to get all confused and mixed up. So either the kinsman redeemer could come in and buy it back, or at the year of Jubilee, it would revert back to the family. God was trying to maintain these, these lines, these structures within Israel. And so that's what Leverite marriage is doing. It's a similar kind of thing. Why? Why, it, why was God so particular about that? Well, I think what was going on is he had promised... Uh, through Jacob, and we'll get there when we get back to um, Genesis. Jacob comes and he gathers his children and he puts blessings on them. And to one of the families, to Judah, he says, the scepter will never depart from between your feet. That, that was the promise that there would be a king who would rise out of the tribe of Judah. So if, and, and God apparently knew that it was going to be a long time before that happened. 
If the family lines got so mixed up and so confused, then they wouldn't know that this one came from the tribe of Judah. So I think that's what God is doing. That's why he's maintaining this with the leveret marriage, with the land reverting back, is he's trying to preserve this until the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the promised one. So the, the Sadducees pick this up and they think, there is nobody ever going to be an- able to answer this question. This question will undo any teacher we bring it to. The Pharisees have never dealt with it. The scribes don't know what to do with it. We'll bring it to Jesus and watch him crumble. We're just going to show him to be wrong. So whose wife will this woman be in the resurrection? Because she's had seven husbands. Jesus' answer, just like last week, kind of blows right past the issue and says, you just don't understand. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So basically what Jesus says here is he looks them right in the face and he goes, resurrected people don't get married. And then drops the mic and walks away. (laughs) No, he doesn't. Unfortunately, there's more packed, uh, we got to unpack here because what, uh, the other Gospels record is a very simple answer. He just says they don't get married. You just don't understand. Here, Jesus gives us a little bit more information in it. Luke gives us more of what he happened to say, and it can be a little confusing. So it was great when we just said married, resurrected people don't marry, but now we have to understand why that is. What, what's he saying here? So he says a handful of things, and what I want to do is kind of pick through them a little bit and show you how they fit together. So first of all, he says, sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Who are the sons of this age? Well, sons is not just males. It's children of this age. If you're alive now, you're a child of this age. So the children of this age are just everybody. The general scheme, the way things work is people get married. And, And you Sadducees, that's what you're asking about because that's what you see is this current reality where people get married. That's great. But, he says, there are some who are counted worthy of that age, who attain to the resurrection. So what he sets up here is a dichotomy between this age, what we're used to, the reality we exist in, and the reality that's coming, the age that will be here. So everybody now gets married and and is given in marriage, and marriage is just kind of part of the mix for us now. But there's a subset of those who who are children of this age who will attain to the age to come. They will, they will be counted worthy of the resurrection. And those folks, those people who show up in the resurrection, they neither married or are given in marriage. So that's the difference. Is you, you Sadducees, you just don't get it. You think that the future age is going to be exactly like this one. And what Jesus is saying is it's ultimately different. It's radically the same, but ultimately different. And don't think in that category. So then the part that starts getting confusing is because he says, for they can't die again. Well, what does that have to do with getting married and giving in marriage? Well, that's not all he says. He says they can't die again because they will be like angels. Um, The ESV says equal to. What Jim read said they will be like. It's actually a compound word. It's the only place it occurs in the New Testament is right here. And basically it means like angels. So what does Jesus mean when he says we'll be like angels in the resurrection? Does that mean that we'll be floating on clouds playing harps with a little halo over our head and then we have to do something really nice for people on earth so we earn our wings? We've all seen It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> you know, we, we know that he had to earn his wings. That's not what he means. 
That can't be what he means. Because what he's talking about is resurrection. And resurrection is not disembodied floating around. Resurrection is a, is a technical term. It means no longer dead. So to be resurrected is you have to die. Once you have died, then you become no longer dead. So the resurrected people don't become angels. They become resurrected people. So we're not going to be in heaven playing harps. Gosh, that'd be boring. And floating on clouds. There's something much better than that. And what he's saying is, like the angels, we won't be given in marriage. Because angels don't marry. So he's not saying that we'll be identical to angels. He's applying it in a very specific way. We won't die again in the resurrection. Death is over. We'll, we won't be married or given in marriage because we'll be in, in the same similar kind of condition that the angels are in. We'll be like angels. And then he says, they are sons of God. So those who attain to the resurrection are sons of God. Just like the angels in Job chapter 1 are referred to as the sons of God, right? In Job, the sons of God are presenting themselves before God. And, and I picture a military parade, because I was in the military, I picture a military parade of the angels marching in front of the reviewing stand where God is watching them. And, and it refers to them as the sons of God presenting themselves before God. So maybe Jesus is picking up on that, touching on Job and kind of doing a little dig in the Sadducees. Hey, you don't even listen to Job. You know, no wonder you don't get this. They'll be like sons of God. This is what it means to attain to the resurrection, is to be like that. And then he sums all of that up again when he says, being sons of the resurrection. All that that encompasses, all that that brings together, that's what they'll be like. So you Sadducees, you ask, whose wife will she be? Nobody's. That's not what it's like. That's not the point. And then that's not enough. So notice he threw in the middle angels. What did the Sadducees not believe in? Resurrection and angels. So Jesus is really kind of sticking it to him, but he isn't done yet. He, he's, he's nailed two of their favorite doctrines. Now he's going to show them how bad their exegesis is. How bad do they understand scripture? And so the next thing that he says is, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed this. In the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So what he's referring to there is Exodus chapter 3 when Moses goes to, this, uh, to the mountain and he's, he's leading sheep. He's, he's abandoned Egypt and now he's a shepherd. God seems to love to raise men up to be leaders by making them into shepherds, right? David, Moses, he's on the mountain. He sees a bush that's on fire. And when he looks again, it's still on fire and it hasn't been consumed. So he says, I'm going to go check this out. This is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. So he goes up on the mountain and God speaks to him out of this burning bush. And he refers to him as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And the way Jesus interprets that is, is he's saying, look, if people die and their soul extinguishes and they are no more, then how is God the God of Abraham? He was, but he says, I am the God of Abraham, not I used to be before he, before he blinked out of existence. He says, I currently am. And so what Jesus is pointing out here is not that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are in their resurrected state. But what he's pointing out to them is there is life after death. This category that you guys have just completely cut off, Moses himself believed in it. So what he does is he says, look, I'll, I'll use your hermeneutic against you, and you still aren't going to get it. So you've had the witness. You've had the testimony. Now, i got to say, if I tried this in seminary, I probably would have failed. <laughs> that, that is such an interesting way that Jesus interpreted that. 
But I think it really kind of works, doesn't it? I mean, he makes a valid point. If Abraham didn't exist, then God is not the currently the God of Abraham. Because there is no Abraham to be the God of. But remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man a while ago? Where did, the, where did Lazarus wind up? In Abraham's bosom. In this place of blessing and bliss and happiness. And Lazarus leans against Father Abraham in this happy place. So that's kind of the intermediate state, but it's a state of existence. It's not a state of non-existence. It's not a state of being blinked out. Lazarus went there. He met Abraham. He had a dialogue with the rich man who was so abusive to him. He could see that he was suffering. He was in a bad place. So what Jesus is showing here is there is a reality to this. This actually happens. This is a good place to be. And so how do they respond? Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, and they no longer dared to ask him a question. The scribes, by the way, have been along in all three of these confrontations, and so I think they finally learned their lesson. Don't pull this on Jesus. He's that sharp of a teacher. So the great application here is you won't be married in heaven. Uh, Let's go. Let's pray. Wait a minute. Jesus said this not just to the the scribes and the Sadducees. He said it in front of his disciples. And the gospel writers, all three of the synoptic gospel writers, felt that this was important enough. They included it in all their gospels. And they're fairly similarly, you know, the story is fairly similar between them. This must mean something for us. So what does this mean? What's our application here? Well, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the resurrection. And the first thing he says is, You can't die again. So in this resurrected state, death is no more. Death is not ultimate. Death dies. Death is broken. And if you're getting older like I am, that's beginning to sound pretty good. I did some work in the yard this week, and it really took the snot out of me. And my hands hurt, and my back aches. And I'm thinking, you know, death going away would not be bad. I would like to be 30 years old again and be able to work in the yard all day and and then go, you know, bike riding at night or something. So the promise is that death is broken. It doesn't doesn't hold. It doesn't have the reign over us. What about the next thing he says, which is you're not married or given in marriage in the resurrection? Is that good news? I heard a woman on a call-in talk show podcast this week her husband had died at a young age he was a godly man by all accounts and she was just shattered that she wouldn't be married to him anymore and so she called and she said what do I do with this I'm not gonna I I enjoyed being this man's wife he was such a great guy I really loved that what's gonna what's it gonna be like in the resurrection what will it be like for me in eternity to not be married to him anymore and she was kind of terrified about that and if you're married you know that feeling You have knit together with this person. You've been with this person. You've shared intimately with this person. What would it be like to never see that person again after the resurrection? That would be terrible. That would be horrifying. My best friend in the entire world throughout most of my adult life I'm not going to be with? Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. He didn't say, oh, and you'll never see her again. (laughs) Those seven, they don't know who she is. That's not absolutely not what he says. What he says is that marriage won't be there. That doesn't mean that personality and relationship won't be there. In the resurrection, there will be those kinds of things. 
there's going to be a lot going on. So let's take a little look at what resurrection is, what it looks like. And I think the best place to go is Romans chapter 8. So in Romans 8, um, Paul is kind of transitioning from a, a bunch of theology into some uh, practical questions. And so in chapter 8, he's kind of in this bridge, and he's, he's presenting this information about what will life look like in Christ, ultimately. So starting in verse 18, he talks about the future that we have in Christ, and this is what he says. I consider the suffering of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So what we are right now, if you're a Christian, if you're a born-again Christian, you're half-saved. Your heart has been made new. Your spirit has been made new. Your, your mind is being renewed. You're leaning in towards and an anticipating Christ, but you have not changed outwardly at all. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies still have what's called muscle memory, which is muscle memory towards sin, muscle memory towards wandering away, short attention span, that kind of thing. So what we're waiting for, what we're longing for, is our complete redemption. Our spirit and our minds have been made new. We want this flesh to be made new, too. And that's what he's talking about with the resurrection. And, and when he considers that, when Paul considers this resurrection, he says, I, the suffering I put up with now, I don't even compare. That's not even worth comparing. The, the troubles that I run into now, the hard times that I have now, it it's pales in comparison with what's coming. Well, how did Paul know? Well, he talks about, I know man, whether in the flesh or not, I'm not sure, who was taken up into the third heaven and he saw things he's not allowed to speak about. I, my take on that, that's Paul talking about himself. And if I'm right, and this is conjecture, so disagree if you want. I think what happened is when Paul was on his first missionary journey, when he got to Derb, he was taken and stoned and dragged outside the city and left for dead. And then miraculously he stands up and he walks right back into the city. Um, I wonder if he hadn't actually died at that point and got to glimpse the heavens and then God brought him back. And I wonder if that's what he's talking about. That's pure theory. But the idea is Paul has seen a glimpse of what is to come. And he says, look, I'm telling you right now, it's not worth comparing. What we anticipate, what we're looking for will be so much better. This present creation, this reality we live in groans. It is subjected to futility. The current reality is stubbed toes, missing screws, lost phone numbers, missed turns, not enough change, slow-moving express lines, broken promises, and missed loved ones. As good as it is, and it is good, it doesn't compare. So all of those things, don't you feel that, that desire for things to just be right? When you get up in the morning, you can't find your slippers. Isn't, aren't you frustrated? When, when you're trying to get to work on time and the person in front of you is going really super slow because they're not sure where they're at, don't you get frustrated? That, that's the nature of this reality. There's a futility to this. There's a frustration that attends it. But your heart is longing for that not to be there. 
We're, we're aching for that futility, that frustration to be gone. We want things to work well. And if you're like me, the taste of you getting things working so well is fairly rare. So it's not like I get addicted to it, so when things go wrong, then I get cranky. It's, I, want, I know that there's a better way things should be. I think that's our heart crying for that resurrection time, for that, that correction of, of creation. Paul said, look, it, not only is creation groaning, we're groaning. We want that resurrection power. We want that resurrection uh, situation. We want reality to work, and it doesn't. Repeatedly, it doesn't. So this is the cry. This is the ache of our, our resurrection bodies is we want to have that, that perfection to work well. We want it to all click together. Um, Tim Keller was talking about the, the final state, the, the new heavens and the new earth, and he said human beings are absolutely hope-shaped creatures. We are hope-shaped creatures. If we didn't have hope, we wouldn't make it. We, we have to have hope. He says, the way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. If you honestly actually believe, I'm going to live this life, and then at the end, I'm going to die and blink out of existence, you can't live that way. There's no point in this. Why get up in the morning? If I'm just going to blink out of existence, oh, because I want to make a better world for, for my grandchildren, 10,000 years from now, your grandchildren won't be remembered. They won't know that you made a better world for them. And by the way, how's that better world thing going? We have to have hope. So either we have hope or we fake ourselves into thinking we have hope. You have to, we're hope-shaped creatures. We have to be hoping for that. So Jesus has presented to us this resurrection, and he's saying this is the hope. This is what it's all about. This is what we're reaching for. So what is it like when we actually start getting to that? Well, actually, we, we start running out of words is what happens. If you read the, the end of the book of Revelation, as we start moving closer and closer to that final eternal state, it gets sketchier and sketchier, and the words get a little further apart, and it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what to say anymore. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, The Last Battle, it's the end of Narnia. Narnia has come to its completion. It's not the last book in written order, but there's a whole debate about that. Immaterial. This is the end of the Narnia story, essentially. Um, the, the children have been brought back to Narnia, and the way into the final state is this old wooden shed. And so as they pass through, as they go in, they're, they're beyond Narnia. Now they're into the king's country, Aslan's land. And, and what, what picture that Lewis is trying to paint here is this is the eternity that we're looking for. This is the place that we're heading. And so when the children come to Aslan and they say, we're afraid you're going to send us back, he says, oh, no, that's over. And this is what he tells them. He says, the school term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. So you look at this reality, and this is all we know. This is, nobody has ever existed in any other reality but this one. This is all we got. But what Lewis is saying here through Aslan's mouth is, this was only the beginning. This was chapter one. This, this wasn't the full story. There's more to come. So as the book ends, Lewis narrates it. He says, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story, 
all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. So that's that promise. That's that, this reality, we think this is the summation of it. This is the title page. This isn't even beginning to scratch into the book. So is it worth being one to attain to the resurrection? Remember he said those who are worthy to attain to the resurrection and the age to come. Again, this is how Paul talks about it. This is from Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in him having a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's the hope that Paul had. He's looking back on his life and he's saying, this title page, I count it all as rubbish. I'm looking forward to chapter 1. That's what I want. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, that I might attain to the resurrection, that I might somehow arrive there. So what does that mean, to attain to the resurrection? I think what we're seeing a picture of here is that there are those who are children of this age. If you've got a heartbeat and, a res- and you can fog a mirror, you're a child of this age. But then there's this group that he refers to that, that will be worthy. They'll, they'll be sons of the resurrection. They will attain to it. They will be counted worthy. Well, that word that he uses there for counted worthy is in the passive. It's not something that we achieve. We've worked hard enough. We've suffered long enough. We've clocked up enough hours. Therefore, we've achieved it. It's used three times in the New Testament in that form, and it's always passive, and it always refers to receiving what God has promised. So how do we receive that? How do we make sure that we wind up as children of the resurrection, as sons of the resurrection? How do we, we become worthy to attain to that? Well, part of it is the promise of resurrection, Right? We're, we're going into Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? Jesus is going to get nailed to a cross and thrown in a, in a tomb. He's going to die. But after three days, he'll rise again. He'll come back to life. And so the, the promise here is, is Jesus is referred to as the first fruits of the resurrection. And that idea of first fruits is you would plant a field and the first things that came up you would, you would harvest those. Those are the first fruits. But what does it promise? It promises the rest of the crop. There's a whole field more of this stuff. It's coming. So Jesus says the first fruits is kind of the demonstration for us. This is what it's like. This is what's coming. And there'll be a whole harvest coming after him. So as the first fruits, that's what we're looking for, is to follow in Jesus, to be just like him, and to, to join him in that resurrection power. So how do we get there? Well, we get there by following the first fruits. The one who paved the way for us, the one who broke through for us is the one that we follow. And so we get there passively by trusting in Christ. That's the implication of this. 
So when we talk about putting your faith in Christ, trusting in Jesus Christ, and we talk about looking forward to the future when, when God says, why would I let you in heaven? We're not talking about floating on clouds. We're talking about this reality, this reality that is so much better than the one we experience now, where sin and death are broken and gone, where creation is no longer futile but fruitful. And it's a physical, tangible reality. If Jesus is the first fruits, he's the role model for us. When he was raised from the dead, he went to his apostles and he said, hey, I'm here. And Thomas was, had already said, well, I kind of doubt it. And he goes, come put your hands in the holes. Put your hand on my side. Look, it's me. It's physically me. It was a physical body that stood there. And then when the apostles are out fishing, Jesus builds a fire on the side of the sea. How do you build a fire? He'd been dead. What did he have with him? Not a whole bunch. He, he broils a fish. Where did he get a fish? He's resurrected. He got a fish because he wanted a fish. And when they join him on the shore, he says, look at the, they, they think he's a ghost. They think he's a spirit. He says, no, look, watch. And he eats a fish in front of them. We will eat in the resurrection, but we won't eat from need. We'll eat from joy. The resurrection will be a physical, tangible reality. So that, back to that question, what about being married? What, what happens with marriage there? If everything we've seen so far is true, then we can anticipate marriage not being missed, but it was a foretaste. It was looking forward to something much bigger. The relationships that we'll have in the resurrection won't be diminished, they'll be increased. And so will we still know each other in heaven? Yes, absolutely. But our relationships will be that much better. Everything else has increased so much, the relationships must. And so marriage won't be needed because we'll have close intimacy with everybody. We won't have sin getting in the way, messing everything up. It will be a glorious thing. So in heaven, will you see your spouse? Yeah, you know what? You may even hang out with him for a couple hundred thousand years. Wouldn't that be great? And then you might go hang out with somebody else for a couple hundred thousand years. You've got all of eternity. Go meet new friends. Wouldn't it be glorious to have that kind of new personality where you're not afraid to meet somebody? <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be great. Go talk to strangers. We've got something in common. So marriage won't be missed. We'll look back at marriage and say, oh, that was just a glimmer. That was just a foretaste of what was coming. It was so much better. There's another aspect to why it is that marriage might not be present in the resurrection. Whenever we look to this age, it's always referred to as the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a wedding feast. So marriage is a picture pointing to something more. And so when John is taken and shown the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven um, in, in uh, Revelation 21, this is how he describes it. He says, Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls of the seven last plagues who spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. The Lamb will have a bride. The Lamb is Jesus, the Word, the Son of God, will have a bride. So maybe the reason that marriage doesn't exist is because it gets sucked up into, it gets drawn into this fuller expression of Christ and his church, of God and his people. And as we looked at that and we say, this is the relationship we have now as the bride of the lamb, 
When we look back to the relationship we had here on earth, we go, that was a taste, but it wasn't there yet. So this is what the Sadducees are missing out on by denying the resurrection. And I'm kind of sad to see that it was the scribes who said, oh, you teach well. And the Sadducees didn't say anything. You, you would hope that when they're confronted with the truth that, that Christ has just unpacked in front of them, they would go, oh, dude, we got it wrong. Uh, I'm no longer a Sadducee. I'm, I'm, I'm giving that up. Jesus, I'm with you. And instead, they just disappear. We don't hear about them again. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the end of the Sadducees seems to have been around 70 AD at the destruction of the temple. We don't hear about them again after that. The, the sect that wins in Judaism after the destruction of the temple was the Pharisees, and none of the other ones survived. So we can hope that that meant they converted, <laughs> that they saw that their hermeneutic was so bad that they misunderstand God so badly that they went, I'm throwing up my hands, I'm becoming a Christian. That would be glorious. Uh, but we just don't know. They just kind of disappear. But for us, um, we have that promise and we have that hope is that we can look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the, the promised resurrection. And so this is the promise that Jesus extends again in Revelation. He says, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. I am making all things new. Futil or, uh, creation will no longer be subjected to futility. It will be made new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are true and worthy. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I, to those who are thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So right there we get picture, the, Jesus picturing, this is what it means to attain to the resurrection, and this is what it means to not attain to it. And, and the not attaining is pretty terrifying, isn't it? Not eternal life, but eternal death. So the application of this story is attain to the resurrection. That's where you want to be going. That's the direction you want to follow. So line yourself up with the master. Don't remain the, the Sadducee who's going to question Jesus, but instead turn and follow. Because the promise is the road may be rough, but the reward will be worth it. I, I count all things as rubbish, as trash, compared to the glory that is to come. So attain to the glory that is to come. And, and by the way, if Keller is right, if we are hope-shaped creatures, then the only way you can survive from the, this point to the end of your life is by having hope. And what more glorious hope than to know this isn't it. I don't get put in a, in a box and rot. There comes a time when I will stand on this earth and I will see my Redeemer. I have the hope of knowing as, as this body withers away and becomes more fragile, there's a point where I get a new body. The body comes back. The, the vitality I once had will be restored, and I'll use it in positive ways, not in the ways I squandered it, but I'll use it in glorious ways. That's that promise, and that's the hope that we have. That's why it's called a blessed hope. 
that's what will keep you alive. That's what will help you endure through the suffering that we're going to see. It's going to come. We're going to have hard times in our lives. But we'll make it because we have a hope that's secure. We have Jesus as the first fruits. Paul got to peek behind the curtain, and he doesn't have words to explain it to us. All he can say is, what's coming will be so much better. Please endure and wait for that. So disciples, that's our discipleship principle here is attain to the resurrection. Look forward to it. Cast your hope on that. That's the way you get through the frustrations of this life without blowing your top, is to say, one day it will be right. One day it will all be set right. And that's what I'm looking for and anticipating. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for being our first fruit and being that secure promise for us, demonstrating to us the promise that is to come, the reality that, that a resurrected life awaits us. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would be seeking and diligent work, diligently working to attain to the resurrection, to do the things that you've commanded us to do, which is trust you, listen to your promises and put our hope in them. Lord, would you bring some of your resurrection power into our lives to revive us, to strengthen us, to give us an increased measure of obedience that we might get a foretaste now of what resurrection life might be like, the joy that awaits. Lord, would you please hold before our eyes all throughout the week, not just on Sunday afternoon, the promise of the resurrection. And Lord, I pray that that would enliven us to to follow you, to hear your voice, and to go after you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.